There you go. That's our, uh, our new assignment, uh, Project Google Us. Uh, we want to make sure that, uh, that people know uh, that we exist, and the best way to do that is obviously word of mouth. Uh, but then if you're new to the area and you don't know anybody and you want to go to church, you're going to type in churches in Linden, Washington, and a lot of times that's how they're going to find out. So the first uh, opportunity for them to encounter the people of FCC is probably online, and that's just the world that we live in. And so um, obviously the, it's kind of a joke, don't write that the pastor talks about football all the time, uh, but what we'd like to do is we'd like to fill up our um, kind of our online platform with all these testimonies of how God has worked. Uh, shout out to Katie. You were the first one to respond uh, to the email that we sent out, and she just kind of talked about how solid Bible-based church and been here most of her life, and, and uh, so that's just good, right? So, so we'd love for people to talk about like how God has impacted you here, or the relationships that you formed, or God's word being preached or taught or heralded and obeyed, um, whether it's our children's ministry, student ministry, women's Bible study, men's Bible study. We'd like to fill up that Google review section with all sorts of ministry um, things that we do here so that people can get a flavor for who we are as a called out community of believers here that gather at 586 Birch Bay Linden Road. So um, we'd love to have you do that and if you did that would be wonderful as far as getting the word out there that we do exist and, uh, and I think God will be pleased with our efforts. Um, but uh, football season is over everybody and uh, so I'm not sure what we're going to talk about until next September. Um, but as I walked in today, somebody did give me a gift. They gave me a Super Bowl ring. They gave me a Super Bowl. I don't think this is the real thing. Um, it feels a little light, but I do have my Super Bowl ring, even though I have no connection to the Kansas City Chiefs. I know I did reference football a lot this year. Do you guys agree with that? Did I? Some of you say, yes, you did, way too much. Uh, but how couldn't I when the Kansas City Chiefs are the Super Bowl champions? Ah, woo, no claps and applause for that. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like I said, I have no real connection to the team or to the players. Um, I just happen to grow up in Kansas. And in fact, the Chiefs don't even play in Kansas. Do you know that? They play in Missouri. Um, so I don't even have a state connection with them. But nevertheless, I've been emotionally attached to them for my life. Deep childhood memories of cheering for the Chiefs. And here's confession time. I did squirm a little bit this last Sunday. I talked about that. Um, as I watched the game on Sunday, I wriggled and I twisted my body about quite a bit. And I was so grateful because the painters were over. I had Scott and Selena and their kids over. And they showed up with one of those like little um, portable massage chair things. So just to ease the tension a little bit. <laughs> it's like, you guys are like real good friends, right? Like, um, so, but lots of cheering, yelling, times of frustration. I was even ridiculed by the youth group after the, after the Eagles scored the first touchdown. They sent me pictures of them cheering. I'm like, come on, right? Um, but at the end of the day, to borrow a phrase from Mike Canfield, it's all good, right? Um, what we want to talk about today is good. Um, it's actually the incredible power for good that our tongues possess. So let's open up to the book of James and let's see what James has to say. Like I said, we're in this passage. We really could read all verses, chapters 3, verses 1 through 12, um, this week, last week, the next week, and the next week. But we're just going to focus in on just a little smart part, small part of it today. Let's look at James chapter 3, verses 2 through 5 and see what God's word has to say about the power for good that our tongues possess. 
Chapter 3, verse 2 says this, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would add your blessing to those of us who read here and then seek to obey this word. God, I pray that we would be able to understand the power that we have residing in our mouths. And I pray that we would be able to utilize their creative power, the words that are ha- our words have creative power for in- incredible amounts of good. And I pray that we would do that today as we are understanding what your text is talking about. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so, so we've been in this passage last week. We'll be in it this week and next week and possibly even the following week. I'm still not sure exactly I'm going to land the plane with this little passage of Scripture because there's so much in here. Uh, but I want to make sure that we understand a literary device that James uses in this section because we're going to be in this passage for, you know, three or four weeks now. Um, so what's all this talk about a tongue? You know, it's kind of a weird word anyway. Um, I've always had a hard time spelling it. Anybody else? It's just kind of like one of those weird English words. I always feel bad for people trying to learn English, right? And then you come across the word tongue, which should just be T-U-N-G, but for some reason it's a tongue, ooh. Like, that doesn't make sense, right? What is the deal with that? Um, I actually did some reading on it, and it comes from somewhere else. But anyway, we're not going to get into that. What we're going to get into is what do we mean when we say tongue, all right? Because it's kind of weird, like, tongue, James, why, why, why 12 verses on tongue? Well, James is going to use a word, the Greek word glossa, as a stand-in for our speech. So what James is going to do is he's going to utilize a figure of speech called metonymy. This is where a writer will take one word that will be a stand-in for another word that's closely related to it. So he uses this, this literary device called metonymy here. And the reason he uses this figure of speech is because when you do that, it adds a level of meaning and complexity and power to what he is saying. That's what metonymy offers to a writer. You could say words are powerful, or you could say the pen is mightier than the sword, right? One gets the bare bones, facts about whatever you're talking about, a cross, right? But the other one makes you stop and think, and it gives you a word picture to chew on for a bit. And the more you think on something, the deeper and the more complex and the more powerful it often becomes. And so that's what James is going to be doing here. What James is going to be talking about in this passage needs so much of our attention, all of it that he can get. So he's all throughout this section, he's going to utilize different analogies and literary devices, illustrations, lessons from the animal kingdom, lessons from nature, lessons even from maritime travel, all sorts of stuff in order to get us to think about the importance of what he feels compelled to share with us. So what James wants us to do is he wants us to listen today. He wants you to listen to what he has to say. And James isn't just talking about tongues. He's talking about the words that our tongues produce. He's using metonymy here. And so let's practice, okay? 
So if I say that the Chiefs are the best team on the gridiron, gridiron is a stand-in for what? It is a football field, because if you look at a football field, it looks like a gridiron. Good. If I say Patrick Mahomes really knows how to throw the pigskin around, what's pigskin a stand-in for? The football, because it's made of leather, right? Last one. If I say that Andy Reid, Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey have solidified their place in Canton, what do I mean? That they're going to the Hall of Fame because it's in Canton, Ohio. Okay, got it? Get it? Okay, last football reference for the day, all right? Maybe for the year, we'll see. All right. When James says tongue, he's talking about our speech, okay? So this has everything to do with all parts of your life here, but especially the way that we talk. And what we need to see is that words contain a creative power that can either bring about life or death. That's what he's going to highlight in this section. Words, the words that are formed by your tongue and your mouth, they actually contain creativity and creative power that can either bring about life or death. And today we're only going to focus on life. Next week we're going to focus on death. And it's actually important for you to hear both of these sermons. And it's actually really important that you remember something that we talked about in last week's sermon. Because last week we talked about the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels that confirms the reality that what comes out of our mouths is actually sourced in our hearts. All right? We don't just have a mouth problem. You don't just have a word problem. You have a heart problem. If, if the stuff coming out of your mouth is bringing about death, that's a problem. If it's bringing about life, it's good. Because this is what Jesus says. What comes out of your mouth is sourced in your heart. Luke chapter 6 verse 45 says this. The good person, out of the good treasure in his heart, produces good. Okay, okay, that makes sense. There's a correlation there between heart and words and mouth and actions. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what I want to do is, now that we know that our words are sourced in our hearts, it's a given. We kind of get that, I hope, if you've read the word. I want to look at our main idea today, and I want to establish an initial point, and then I want to see what James says about the sizable impact that our words can have for good, for good this week, okay? So if we look back at our main idea that we're talking about, it's kind of broken down into two parts, and the first part is this, words contain creative power. Words contain Within our words, they, they hold within them creative power. Words are extraordinarily powerful. If you just open up to the very beginning of our holy book, you'll see the incredible creative power that words have. As out of the darkness and out of the chaos, words poured out of God's proverbial mouth and all things came into being, right? By his word, he said, let there be, and then it was so, and then he says, that was good, what he did. The creative power that our words have. So the psalmist picks up on this. The psalmist says in Psalm chapter 33, verse 9, for God spoke and it came to be. God's word had a creative power to it. He commanded and it stood firm. And then think about this, when Jesus actually shows up on the scene, what does he show up as? He shows up as the word of God incarnate. 
bringing that creative power with him. So John picks up on this, and John opens up his gospel account with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were what? All things were made through him, through the Word. Jesus was there, the pre-incarnate Christ at the beginning of creation, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made that anything made that was made. So we get this incredible power that words have in our God. It's hard to not see the incredible power that words contain. God used words to bring about everything that we see. Everything that's ever existed was brought about by word of God. And we as image bearers of God himself, we being little reflectors of him, have an incredible amount of creative power in our words as well. Our words contain creative power to either do great good or great harm. We must recognize this. We must recognize the power of words and use them with great restraint. Some of us aren't doing that very well. Our words will either dishonor the Lord and destroy others, or they will honor the Lord and help others. We can either help people or hurt people who are made in God's image based off of what comes out of our mouths. I referenced Paul Tripp, biblical counselor, uh, former pastor, Um, last week, and he says this. Think about this. You have never spoken a neutral word. Never. You've never spoken a neutral word in your life. Your words have a direction to them. If your words are moving in the life direction, they will be words of encouragement, hope, love, Peace, unity, instruction, wisdom, and correction. But if your words are moving in the death direction, they will be words of anger, malice, slander, jealousy, gossip, division, contempt, racism, violence, judgment, condemnation. Your words have a direction to them. Either to help people or to harm people. And this section of James is not just warning us, I told you this last week, is not just warning about about the danger of a curse word occasionally coming out of your mouth. That's not in James's mind here. A lot of times we think, well, I don't have a problem with my tongue because I don't swear. That's not what James is talking about. That could be part of it, but it's not just what he's talking about. This was written to remind us of the seismic impact that our words can have on those around us. It will either destroy everything in your life or it will build everything else up. So your choice, and James is going to say, please, please, please choose wisely. Okay, so let's look at the text of James and let's walk through this and then I'll make some points of application. Look at verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. Anybody agree with that? Anybody stumble this week? In not just one way, but probably many ways, yeah? Good, me too. (laughs) Let's be honest about it. For we all stumble in many ways, and primarily with our mouths. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Illustration, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Here's James's point. Horses are big 
And horses are powerful. But horses can also be controlled by something really small in their mouths. And so therefore, horses can be very productive beyond your own abilities. Do you see this? They can be very productive. The ability to control a horse is very advantageous to you if you're trying to go to war. They can pull your chariot. Or if you have some farming to do. They can help you work the land more efficiently. They can pull your plow or help you herd animals. And not only that, they're a fantastic means of transport. They can get you across the land much faster than your two little legs can. A horse is big, and a horse has great power to accomplish some awesome things that you would not be able to do on your own, but you need to know how to control it. And so some of you say, well, I'm not a horse person. Okay, big deal. Well, just in case you're not a horse person, James moves on to something even bigger than a horse on the land, and he starts talking about a ship on the chaotic waters of the sea. So hopefully you're a boat person. He's trying to cover land people and sea people, all right? And you're like, I'm neither one of those. I don't know. Maybe this doesn't apply to you, okay? Look at what he says. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large, and they're driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. It's actually really pretty funny here when you look at it, the way James writes this. James uses an imperative injunction. To, and you're like, well, what's that? Well, let me demonstrate what it looks like. This isn't just look at the ships. This is behold the ships. Makes me think of like a pirate accent. I, I'm not going to do it. I, tem- I thought I would do it, but I'm not going to. It's too risky, right? But it's like behold the ships. I'm not going to do it. I want to, but that's, that's, what he, that's what he says. He's like behold the ships. Okay, let's look at the ships. What do, we need to, what do we need to behold about them? Well, this is what he's going to say. Once again, James uses the creative power of language in order to get his point across about the incredible power of language. This is great writing by James in the New Testament. And he's going to continue to cleverly play with some words throughout the rest of this verse as he contrasts a ship which is so large with a very small rudder and are words that can boast of great things. So I want to show you this. And to show you this, I need two volunteers. I need Elijah and Trevin. Can you come up here? But conceal what you have in your hands. Come on up here. Don't show anybody what you got. All right, Trevin, can you stand on this side over here? And, uh, and then Elijah on this side, okay? So James uses the superlative of the Greek word micros, okay? It's where we get the word micro from, something very, very small, tiny. So I want you to imagine, okay, I want you to imagine the, the size of a car, Could you got it? Like some of you will have a compact car. Well, just the normal size car that you can actually drive around, okay? Now, okay, so you have your car in your mind, okay? That's kind of a, that's the the picture that you have in your mind. Elijah, can you hold up and show everybody what's in your hand, okay? 
Look at this. Who wants this car to be their real car, right? It's a little tiny race car, right? It's a, it's a Hot Wheels car. This is a small version of the real thing. It's what they call a scale model, right? So anybody like to play with Hot Wheels or Matchbox cars? Yeah, it's super fun, right? Okay. So this is much smaller, right? Well, have you ever heard of micro machines? Trevin, can you hold yours up? Look at this little thing. Look at this little tiny car. This was like what I played with when I was a little kid. I had micro machines and I step on them every once in a while, right? James is trying to show you that despite its size, he's not talking about something small. He's talking about something really, really, really small, okay? He's not talking about just like the scale model. He's like talking about really, really, really small. Can we give it up for these two volunteers? You can go down and sit down. All right. James is talking about something that despite its size, the size of a rudder, that thing can be very, very influential. Try stepping on that thing, right? See if it'll make you dance around the room a little bit, okay? And the creative language continues because James doesn't use the word micros, okay, micros, sorry, about the rudder of a ship and then just move on. No, he moves on to something else to point it, and point it out to you and highlight it. Because in verse 5, he's going to use the word megas. What does megas sound like? Mega, right? Like really big. And he, tries, and he talks about megas to describe what our tongues are capable of. Great things. And by the tongue, once again, he means our words. So we have the words micros and megas and the use of metonymy. James is incredible here. He wants you to slow down and see the creative power of words. He's playing with words left and right, so you like stop and look at him like, what's James getting at here? Look, ships can be very helpful. They can deliver a payload that you couldn't carry on your own over chaotic waters, especially when they're driven by strong winds. Try swimming across that. Ships can get you across a body of water faster than your little legs or arms can swim. But if the rudder of the ship doesn't work properly, you are in big trouble. But if it does, wow, it can take you and it can deliver for you a massive payload and a weight of blessing that you wouldn't be able to do on your own. So that is why James ends this segment by saying that the tongue can boast of great things, of megas things. The boasting isn't good or bad. He's just indicating that your words have a substantial amount of power. What he's saying is like, people, you have no idea how something so small could have such a big impact on the outside world. And so we say, okay, we, we get the creative wordplay. Now what? Words contain power. Now what? Well, this is the second part of our message, and then we'll preach the second part or the third part of it next week. But words contain creative power that can bring about life or death. And today we're going to talk about life. I referenced this verse last week, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And the reason why I'm going to talk about life first instead of death, even though sequentially it talks about death first, then life, is because James seems to talk about the good parts of our words before he talks about the bad parts of our words. So I want to say true to James versus Proverbs here, but we could reverse it anyway. 
it doesn't really matter. The data that we have to work with in the Bible on this topic is overwhelming. If you open up to the book of Proverbs, what you'll notice is that one out of six Proverbs has to deal with our speech. One out of six. Now, Proverbs is about wise living, how to live and please God with the way you live. And at least one of six of those times, God wants to get something across to us about our words. And we're going to look at a few of them today, and we're going to see what type of categorical good can be created by the words that we use. But before we do that, I want to go to Ephesians and talk about what I like to call functional righteousness. Here we go. In the second half of the book of Ephesians, you can go ahead and turn there if you want to, chapter 4. We're going to look at a couple different verses, and they'll be on the screen as well, but you can go ahead and get yourself ready. In the second half of the book of Ephesians, Paul is going to argue that the true righteousness and holiness that we've been given must become very practical and not just mystical, okay? Like the rubber has to meet the road in your life. Chapters 1 through 3 are a wonderful explanation, a theological explanation of how we've come into a right standing with the Holy God. But chapters 4 through 6 will demand that that true righteousness that's been given to us must become a visible and tangible righteousness that plays itself out in how we relate to other people, And how do we relate to other people? Well, the primary way that we relate to other people is by communicating with them. And our primary means of communication is our words. The words we establish, the words that we use establish a connection with people. So the words that we use are vitally important. So that's why Paul says in chapter 4, verse 15, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. If you were here last week, we all admitted to that we have we all admitted the fact that we have something to work on here. And that was in reference to our speech, but if truth be told, if we're honest, at least I'll be, my speech is not just the only thing that I need to work on. I have a lot of stuff, a lot of areas in my life that need to be reformed and and remade in the image of Christ. I'm deficient in so many areas. And I desperately need truth-filled, loving help from others in the body of Christ to come alongside me and help me grow. And that's what Paul is going to talk about here. Sometimes, listen, this is going to get really practical. Sometimes we may need to correct or confront false thinkings in our home. Sometimes we may need to correct or confront false thinking in the lives of those who congregate at this house of worship. So we must be ready to speak the truth in love so that we can all grow up and mature. This love is a self-sacrificial love that works for the good and the benefit of the one being talked to. This truth being spoken for love is the recipe for maturity. We are all bound to brokenness and wounded, and we need others to come alongside us with words to help fix us and mend us. So this is not what Paul is talking about here. We don't confront and correct others simply to make our lives easier. That's not the goal. That may be a nice, fine byproduct, but we engage in this type of loving communication so that we as a family unit or as a gathered body of Christ can better represent who our God is to a watching world as we live out the one another's in the New Testament well. 
And so whatever comes out of our mouths must be filled with doctrinal truth and motivated by self-sacrificial, self-giving love. And then 10 verses later, Paul has more to say about this because in verse 25 he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members one of another. And we're going to talk about the destructive nature of falsehood next week. It's so ugly and it's so deadly. But today we're going to talk about the creative power for good that our words can have. So let's look at the positive nature. Look at what truth-filled words can create. Because he says, put away the falsehood and speak the truth with your neighbor for we're members of one another. So I was just trying to brainstorm about this in my own personal life. Areas where I've done good and areas where I've failed. The creative power of words for good. Think about this. When you're honest with somebody, what do you create? You create a sense of trust. Do you think that that might be important in your relationships? If you have a healthy amount of trust in your relationship, that allows both individuals to be more open and giving to one another. Trust actually provides a sense of safety and faithfulness and commitment and reliability and appropriate comfort. These are amazing qualities to have in a relationship when you're honest, when you speak the truth with your neighbor. What you're doing is you're actually creating trust. Your words can create something as significant as trust. If you're honest, wow, that's a really good thing to create. And your words accompanied by your actions actually create it. And some of you aren't saying the truth. We'll talk a little bit about that next week. And you're laying down a trap for yourself. But when you're honest and you speak the truth, it's creating trust. And that can only be good. I thought about this. When you praise somebody for their accomplishments, you create confidence. Right? When you, when you appropriately praise somebody for their accomplishments, you create confidence. Acknowledging somebody's work and praising them for a job well done goes a long way to create confidence in that person. Think about this the next time you express praise to your kids for their work in school or how they handled a conflict-riddled situation with a sibling or a kid at the playground. When you do that, you'll see like they stand up a little bit taller, right? They might even try to replicate what they did, maybe even try to do better the next time that they're in that situation because that affirmation can create confidence. Even something as small as this, ask a six-year-old how old they are, and they'll tell you if they're six or if they're six and a half, right? And if you say six and a half, and you'll be like, six and a half, wow, what do they do? They, they, they're excited, Right? And this isn't just flattery, like, don't shortchange them. They lived 180 more days on this planet. That's curse-filled. That's hard to do, right? But when you, when you acknowledge that, it's like, no, you're not just six. I'm six and a half, and you affirm that? They're like, yeah, I am, right? Just little things like that. I'm not suggesting the empty use of empty flattery, right? That's deception, and people can usually see through that. I'm talking about true, honest affirmation of someone's accomplishments, and that can create an amazing amount of confidence in the person that you're speaking to. Do you think that that could be good in your family? Do you think that that could be good in your workplace? Do you think that that could be in 
benefit to the ministries that you serve in or are a part of. Yeah. I was thinking about this this week. There's like some really unique, strange aspects of my job, right? One of which, I get up and talk in front of a whole bunch of people week in and week out. It's, it's a unique position. It's strange. Not many get this platform. And public speaking is a massive, massive fear for people, most people. It isn't for me, Right? And that's not because I'm amazing or I'm so cool. That's not it. It's due to the gifting of the Holy Spirit and the calling that King Jesus has placed on my life. But there is a vulnerability to me when I get up here and talk. And honestly, you guys are all so gracious with me. You put up with football talk. I referenced it. All right. Sometimes I get excited. You've already heard me. I stumble over my words sometimes because I get excited or I'm rushing a little bit. Sometimes I talk longer than you want me to talk, right? But every week, I kid you not, every week, some of you, some of you, and it not, not necessarily the same person every week, but a handful of you, every week will reach out to me. And you'll either reach out to me through a text or an email or a phone call or even a personal conversation throughout the week, and you'll say, hey, great job with the message, Do you know what that does for me? I'm not just fishing for those compliments. I'm just, I'm asking you, do you know, do you know what that does for me? That enables me to get up here and try again the next week. Why follow this train of thought? Because, and follow it to the very end here. So pay attention for two paragraphs, please. I value and I cherish the friendships that I have with you that build me up. It goes a long, long way to create some confidence in me. Your words do that. But do you know it's even more uplifting to me than all you well-intentioned people? When Suzanne, when Suze opens up her mouth and says something to me that affirms my ministry calling and compliments something that I said in the message, that's on a whole nother level. When Suze says something to me about something good in the message, do you know how much assurance and composure that gives me? Her words create a confidence in fact, I think you could all say I did horrible. But if Sue said I did good, it might just all even out. It might even tip the scales of confidence in my favor. Why? Because Sue's, in her connection with me as my wife, because she's my wife, her words and her evaluation is of supreme importance to me because I know she loves me and is committed to me. People that love you, they have a tremendous amount of creative power and energy in their words that they can send your way either for good or for bad. Do you know how much my kids' affirmation means to me? I'm not just trying to build up my self-esteem. I'm not, I'm not talking about the self-esteem movement. I'm not at all. But just the affirmation that my kids give me. A lot of times I'll make, I used to make, not as much anymore, but I used to make a whole bunch of silly videos to promote different things at our church. 
And they would tell me that they liked it, and it meant the world to me. I even currently write a whole bunch of Bible verse songs because I feel like it helps me remember and recall Scripture in a moment's notice, and sometimes they're really good. Sometimes they're really, really hard and confusing to sing, but when my kids like them, they tell me, and that makes me want to stick out my chest a little bit more. My kids like what I did. My kids, six-year-olds, nine-year-olds, it means everything to me as a dad. Words are regularly remembered, and they're not easily forgotten. So listen, some of you, you need to start building up your spouse. Some of you, all of you need to start building up your kids. Or kids, look at me real quick. Kids, look, 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 look. Hi, I'm the pastor. Listen, listen. Kids, you need to start building up your parents. You need to tell your parents they're doing a good job. It's hard. It's, wait, it's hard. Maybe one day God will make you a mom or dad. And you just want your, you'll just want your kids to say, hey, you're doing a good job. I see how hard it is. Kids, you need to start telling your parents that they're doing a good job. And if any of you, child or spouse or grandparent, anybody here that's in this room that's listening or even online, if you say, I don't see anything commendable in the people of my house, My office is open all week long and I'll be happy to meet with you and point some things out to you. I'll show you because you might be blind to it from years of calluses, from cinder block wall building. I'll show you. Come by and I'll show you. Paul continues on in this section with a threefold screening process for what comes out of our mouths. He doesn't leave us alone. He says in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for building up as fits the occasion and that it may give grace to those who hear. First of all, notice the prohibition on anything that's harmful. No corrupting, no harmful, rotten talk should come out of your mouth. We'll talk about that next week. Today we're just gonna highlight the threefold screening process that Paul gives us. And what he says is, You can only say, you can only say that which builds somebody up and as long as it fits the occasion and as long as it gives grace to those who hear. If it doesn't pass that test, Paul says it should not come out of your mouth. And if you're tempted to let it come out of your mouth and it's right there on the tip of your tongue, that means that there's something wrong with your heart. So, will what I say build this person up or tear them down? Depending on how you answer that question, feel free to say it or silence it. Does what I'm about to say fit the occasion? And I think this is where we so often go wrong. We have the right thing to say, but we swing and miss on the timing with our right words, and they're offered at a wrong time. So think before you speak. Think, is this the right time? Is this, is this the most opportune time for, for this person I'm going to talk to about this thing? We'll be able to hear it, right? Will this be better heard at a different point in time? Will what I'm about to say be helpful at this particular moment, or should I wait for a more opportune time? Maybe the best time, I've said this before, to having loving conflict resolution isn't at 11.30 p.m. when your spouse and you are exhausted and you need to wake up early the next day. 
Make sure that your speech fits the occasion. Maybe it's not the very moment you walk in from being at your day job and before you're lovingly greeted or lovingly greet your spouse, right? Timing can be everything here. And finally, Paul says this. Ask yourself, will what I'm about to say give grace to everyone who hears? Whoa. Grace, you know what grace is? It's showing undeserved kindness and favor to somebody. So in this case, we must show undeserved kindness and favor to people with what comes out of our mouths. Because the words that we choose and how we use them can either build people up or tear them down. The words that we use in this called out community of believers will either bring us together or it will rip us apart. So careful little mouths what you say. The incredible potential for the flourishing of this body of believers resides in each person's mouth. And if we give this right, we'll be able to keep this whole body in check. And there's like 300 of us that gather here normally. That's a lot to keep in check. And there's so, so, so much more that could be said. And we're actually probably going to revisit some of this another day. But for today, I just want to hit you with a smattering of Proverbs and a few more New Testament verses that highlight the creative power for good that our tongues possess. So you can write these down. or They might be in the bulletin. I'm not sure. Proverbs 15.31 says this, The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Your words can give life, even as you're reproving somebody, even as you're showing where they're wrong. You can bring life to that situation, life-giving reproof. Proverbs 12, 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings what? Healing. I refer to this one as the Christmas verse because it's Proverbs 12, 25, December 25th. This is how I remember it. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Anybody struggle with anxiety? The power that words have to come alongside somebody who's had a weighed down heart with anxiety and a good word can make that person glad even in their anxiety? Talk about powerful. Because a lot of you know how powerful your anxiety is. Something even more powerful is the good word that you could hear coming from the mouth of somebody who's trying to build you up in that moment. 1 Peter 3, 9 says this, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Maybe you're in a situation like, man, I'll do it better once the person that I'm in conflict with does it better, right? Once they stop depositing evil and reviling me, then I'll turn. No, that's not what Peter says. He says, but on the contrary, bless them. Give them undeserved kindness. Bless them, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. You're like, well, what's the blessing? Well, maybe the blessing is perhaps the person you're in conflict with who's reviling you, who's speaking evil against you, is won over by your gracious words. Why? Because Proverbs 16, 24 says, gracious words are like a honeycomb. They bring sweetness to the soul and health to the body. And if you have control over what comes out of your mouth, you can obey Paul's command to the Colossians when he says, let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with a little bit of salt. Man, that tastes good. 
And if you do that, you will have demonstrated the creative power of words for good, just like the wise one told us in Proverbs 10, 11, when he says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Fountain. That's not some stagnant pool. That's, that's constantly moving, bubbling, flowing over, fountain of life in the lives of people around you. That's incredibly good. And I was thinking about this. Maybe some of the best creative, most life-giving words that were ever spoken to us was by God himself when he said this. Thus says the Lord, he who created you, he who formed you, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Those are good words that caused life to abound in us in the past, in our present, and ultimately in our future. Let's pray. God, these words have been spoken to us from the biblical authors that were inspired to write these words that give life to us. And I pray that we as little reflectors of you would be able to give life to other people with the way that we use and harness the power, the creative power of our words. And God, I pray that as we move into this time of communion, we know that the word of God has spoken, that we have been delivered. The power of sin is broken. We have become free people and there's no condemnation for us. So God, as we take in this time of remembering how that was accomplished for us, I pray that you'd be blessed in our eating and our drinking now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.